to just start and see with a show of hands. Can you hear me back there, by the way? Everybody good? Okay, show of hands. How many of you have someone in your family named Jezebel? <laughs> Nobody. How many of you had that name on your list to name your daughter? Nobody. I can't believe it. I can't understand. I mean, I've, I've heard of so many people named Jezebel. Well, maybe not people, but more like rogue cows or <laughs> dogs. <laughs> so I need five people to give me a one-word description of Jezebel. Evil. What else? Controlling. Wicked. Controlling. Controlling. That's a good one. That one. Two more. What? Manipulative. Manipulative. Cruel. Cruel. Okay. So, bad dude, I want to say, even though she was not a dude, she was bad. The dictionary, dictionary.com says that Jezebel has a definition, and it's wicked, shameless woman. So why did Neil Pollard give me this topic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not really sure, especially calling it from the book of James. I mean, I really, I'm not person, what? Where is Je I read, where Jezebel in the book of James? She's not in there. She is, you know, Elijah's nemesis is how he put it. So that's, that's how we came to that. But you know, most memorable lessons come from women that we do not want to be like. There's a lot of women that I do want to be like, but I tell you what, I remember probably more from women that I don't want to be like. I remember very specifically a woman that I worked for right when we were first married. I was a bank teller. She was my manager. And there was about 10 of us bank tellers. We got there before she did. When she came around that corner, we could look at her and we knew with one look what kind of day we were going to have. And I was 20 years old. That told me right then, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be the kind of woman that when someone looks at my face, they know they're going to have a bad day. So that taught me a lot. And I think we can learn a lot from Jezebel. She's part of Israel's history. So we're going to talk about Jezebel today. She's such, a, she's the explanation, or one of the explanations for why God had regulations for his people. You know? Turn and look at Deuteronomy. Chapter 7, we're going to read several verses here, beginning in verse 1, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, when the Lord your God brings them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Remember that. Make no covenant and show no favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following you to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Skip down to the verse in nine. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments, with those who love him and keep his commandments. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. God gave some instructions for his people. Ahab did not follow these instructions. And we're going to find out what happened when he did not. A couple of weeks ago, I was FaceTiming with my daughter-in-law, Alyssa. They have a little two-year-old daughter. And I was supposed to be FaceTiming Turner, but Turner was busy running around. So I ended up FaceTiming Alyssa. And I can see her face while she's watching Turner. And she's telling Turner, you can go this far. You can go to that tree, and you can go to this tree, and then you can come back to me. And I'm watching Alyssa's face while she's talking to me part of the time and talking to Turner part of the time. And then I see her say, too far, too far. And she wanted Turner to come back to her. And I think about us, how we are as children of God, how we are constantly trying to tear down these fences that God has put around us for our protection. We're forever pushing those fences open, trying to find a hole in them. And that's what happened with Jezebel and Ahab. So what can we learn from Jezebel? That's what we want to talk about today. So we're going to examine some of her words, some of her actions, some of the things that she did and said, and things that people said about her. And we're going to talk about her end. She had a pretty nasty end of her life. We read about her in 1st and 2nd Kings, particularly in 1st Kings 16 and 18 and 19 and 21 and then in 2nd Kings 9. There are other places that she's mentioned, but that's where we'll find the stories that are the accounts that we'll talk about today. She lived during the time of the divided kingdom, and she was part of Ahab's kingdom. He was the seventh king of Israel. What do you know about Ahab? What's one word you think about Ahab? Good king or bad king? Evil, bad king. Well, there's about four different stories, and you know when I say stories, they're real. They really happen. Four different things that we find out about Jezebel from reading through these passages. The first one we read of is in 1 Kings chapter 16, if you want to look over there. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning about verse 30. This says that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He was a bad dude. It came about... As though it had been a trivial thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now that's interesting to me too, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. When you read about him, there's at least 22 different times that you read in scripture that says that Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. And whenever you come across his name, it's almost like this little parenthetical statement that's in it. It says he caused Israel to sin. It's like God wanted them to not forget Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. So this says here, as though it had been a trivial thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. I had never noticed this before. When you look at Jezebel's name and her father's name, Ethbel, what do you see in there? Baal. Baal. So she came from Sidon, which is just north of Israel. And then it says that Ahab went to serve Baal and to worship him. 
Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So Ahab, the king of Israel, built a house for Baal, built an altar to Baal. He also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings in Israel who were before him. So, you know, when I think about reading through this as a child, you know, being taught the stories of the kings of Israel and kings of Judah, and I reveal my ignorance here, but I never really made the connection that these were God's kings. He was a king of Israel. In my mind, reading through this as a kid, I thought he was just one of these, part of one of these nations that Israel was to go in and kick out. But Ahab, you know, he belonged to God. He was one of God's kings. But this explains a lot, doesn't it? That Ahab married, he intermarried Jezebel with Jezebel. Why do you think he would have married Jezebel? It was an alliance, most likely, right? Trying to have an alliance with this neighboring nation to keep peace among the area. But then again, what is Baal worship? We hear about Baal worship all the time. And I didn't want to dig too far into it. I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time. Plus, you know, you don't want your search history to be full of things that you probably wouldn't be too excited to see. But if you do do some some research on Baal worship, it's pretty nasty stuff. A lot of magic and rituals, but especially a lot of sexual sin. Male and female cult prostitutes. So this was coming into Israel. This is what Ahab was involved in. We'll see a little bit later that he really was involved in it. So again, one of God's kings that was involved in this. So Ahab marries Elijah. Ahab marries Jezebel and goes against what God said to do. He made this alliance with this neighboring nation that he shouldn't have, with this wicked woman brought in male worship. And so God tells Ahab, through Elijah, there's going to be drought. It's going to be three years of drought. What does drought lead to? No food, you can't grow crops. What do you say? Famine, which leads to death, and that leads to. Think about the implications here. When you have drought, you have famine, you don't have food, which leads to people looking for food, which leads to jobs not being able to be kept up. No one can pay for jobs. I'm thinking of what, what happens today when we have struggles like this. Crime. So it's probably a hard time to live in three years. It doesn't sound like a lot, but three years of no rain. When's the last time it rained today? <laughs> but three years ago, that was sort of the beginning of the pandemic. That seems like quite a long time ago. Imagine there having been no rain for three years. But apparently Jezebel and Ahab were not as effective as most of the people in Israel because she was able to support 450 prophets of Baal says that they ate at her table. So when you imagine that, you kind of think, well, if they were able to do that, it means they were taking food and water from other people. So their kingdom was suffering. The people that lived under them were suffering, and it didn't seem to bother them quite as much. Just for context, what was going on during this time period, the same same time period was when Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath. Remember, she was, she was suffering because of the drought. He asked her to make a cake for him, and she said, all I have left is this little bit of flour and oil. 
I'm going to make it for my son and myself, and then we're going to die. So this was going on at the same time. Well, three years later, the drought has been going on for three years. Somewhere during this time, I'm not sure exactly when, but Jezebel had massacred prophets of God. But God told Elijah that he was going to send some rain. And in the process of Elijah telling Ahab this, that there's an interchange between Obadiah who had hid a hundred prophets from Jezebel to keep them from being massacred, and, and Elijah finally goes before Ahab, and Ahab says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Talk about just lying to his own fault. Calling Elijah the troubler of Israel when Ahab had been doing all that he'd been doing? He was blind to himself, wasn't he? But Elijah says, and I'm going to get mixed up with my names here, but Elijah basically says, I'm going to show you who God is. He says, go and get the prophets of Baal, the prophets of the Asherah. People in Israel meet me up on Mount Carmel. And I know most of you have heard this story probably all of your life. First uh, Kings 18 is where this is taking place. So, you know, this had to take a little bit of time to gather all these prophets, to gather the people of Israel, to bring all of these people up onto Mount Carmel. And we know about the duel. We know what happened and how the, they built these altars and, and one was to, to Baal and one was to God. And the prophets of Baal, they killed the oxen and they put this altar up and they prayed. It says that they raved all day long. And of course, nothing happened because they're praying to a dead idol. And then... Elijah he built the altar, got the altar, put the oxen on it, and what did he send for? Water. water. Did you ever wonder where that water came from in the middle of a drought? And it was 12 jars, and their jars were not small. What I'm imagining is a big, tall jar, 12 jars that he poured it, they had poured on it, four, four jars three times all over this altar, so it was drenching wet. And he prayed to God, and God sent fire down, and it all was consumed licked up the water, every bit of it. No doubt that God was God. So Elijah very decisively won that duel. Do you wonder if Jezebel realized that God was God at that time? How could you see something like that and not know that God was God? But it didn't make her believe in any way. It made her mad. And what did she threaten? She threatened Elijah. I will make you as dead as these prophets are. And so he ran. He ran from them. I always wonder why he ran. You know, he just seen evidence of God and the power of God. But he must have been exhausted. There's any number of reasons why he ran. So that is one of the first encounters with Jezebel, how she got mad and she threatened the life of Elijah after the duel on Mount Carmel. Then several chapters, we read about some wars with the Arameans. And then we hear about this encounter with Jezebel and Ahab and a man named Naboth in 1 Kings 21. So Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. This is somewhere in the Jezebel Valley. Naboth, Ahab goes to Naboth and he basically wants to buy this vineyard. But Naboth can't because it's part of his, his inheritance. And so he says no. So Ahab went home and the words sullen and vexed are used numerous times. It's so descriptive that Ahab was sullen and vexed. 
I've seen children like that. My children were often like that when they were young. So it's interesting to look at that. Solomon Vex. It says that he turned his face to to his to the wall while he was laying on bed and couldn't eat. Such a child. And Jezebel comes in and basically says, What's the problem here? What's going on? Ahab, why aren't you eating? And he tells her, and you almost get it when you read it, you can picture it in this with his lower lip sticking out. I want this vineyard and he won't give it to me. And she basically says, let me handle this. And so she goes, using Ahab's authority, using his seal, and writes a letter and has this plot that she's already thought of. And basically has <coughs> worthless men testify against Naboth and has him killed. And then she goes back to Ahab and says, there, there, honey, now you can have your vineyard. And, they, and Ahab doesn't seem to question anything. He just goes and takes possession of the vineyard. So it's interesting, too, when you read this account. God holds Ahab accountable for that. He says, have you murdered and taken possession of this vineyard? He doesn't ask Jezebel about it, but he asks Ahab, have you murdered? So Ahab knew what was going on, and he was weak enough to let Jezebel do what she did. So Elijah tells him, I will wipe out the house of Ahab. This is God's word. I will wipe out the house of Ahab, and dogs will eat Jezebel. That is a prophecy. And he tells Elijah, he tells, Elijah tells Ahab, you sold yourself to be evil. That's what Ahab did. So that's our next uh, picture of Jezebel, what she did, her plot to murder Naboth. Look at 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. It says, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. She urged him on. She instigated what he did. So, more time passed. Ahab was killed by the Arameans. And then their son, Ahaziah, became king. 1 Kings 22, verse 52 says that he did evil. He walked in the way of his father and mother, like Jeroboam. That he served Baal and worshipped him. And he privileged God. So he, Ahaziah, son of Ahab and Jezebel, was a chip off the old block, wasn't he? So more time passed, and during this time is when we see the Shunammite woman, and Elisha is now the prophet, and Elisha uh, takes care, she provides a room for him to stay, her son dies, uh, and when you know Israel, you can see in your mind the Jezreel Valley, and that Elisha was on Mount Carmel, and she was over by Mount Tabor, and, and she chased after the mother, Shunammite woman, chased after Elisha to bring him back to help raise her son. This was the time that Naaman was healed. And this is also the time when Jehoram or Joram, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out who was who. And sometimes Joram is Jehoram, sometimes Joram is Joram, and sometimes Jehoram is Jehoram, and I can't remember who was <laughs> So you do your own research here. But this was during the time of the Shunammite woman, or the time of Naaman, and Joram or Jehoram was king. Second king is not. Elisha anoints Jehu as king and gives him the assignment to strike the house of Ahab and avenge the blood of my servants. That's 2 Kings 9 verse 7. And here we're going to see a lot and to see Jezebel again. I wonder how many years had passed. I'm not sure how many years had passed, but it had been quite some time. 
I wonder if Jezebel thought that God had forgotten about what was what he told Jezebel he was going to do. One thing we know about God is that he is patient. And he will do what he says he's going to do. And things that he said thousands of years ago will still come true now and later. So Jezebel could not be fooled, but apparently she she didn't think too much more about it. Well, Jehu went to Jezreel to do what God told him to do. Probably like some of your husbands, he was driving furiously. But he killed both the king of Israel and the king of Judah. One of them was Ahaziah, the other one was either Joram or Jehoram, depending on how you figure it out. <coughs> Jezebel heard about what had happened, that both of the kings had been killed. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings 9, verses 30 and following. It says, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. What did she do? She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and he said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and he drank, and he said, See now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and they said, This is the word of the Lord, which is spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel a dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dead on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel. So they can't say this is Jezebel. There was going to be no monument erected to Jezebel so that people could go and see where she was buried and pay honor to her. You can't imagine why would anyone pay honor to her, but today, things are topsy-turvy, right? I can see people going to pay tribute to Jezebel today, and I imagine there were people like that then. But that's what happened to her. She had a pretty nasty end. When you think about the, her end, her death, it was pretty disrespectful, wasn't it? There was no respect in the way that she was killed. It was gruesome. God did keep his promise. It was pretty shameful. Think about dogs eating her. Jews <coughs> were not looked upon. You know, that was not a an honorable way to do, but it was a fitting death for Jezebel. So that's what we know about Jezebel. She was a nasty woman. She was not anyone that any of us want to be like or should be like. There's really not anything in her that we should admire. I read some different things that said that the fact that she dressed herself up and met her death bravely. I'm not sure at all. In fact, I'm sure that that is not what she was doing. To me, what she was doing was just being obstinate and, and thinking that maybe she was going to escape this. There's no telling what she was thinking because she was a, a terrible woman. But what we want to do in our time remaining is to think about what we can learn from this nasty woman. Several different things. First of all, Jezebel had a heart full of idolatry. She brought Baal worship to Israel. She brought it into the king's palace. She influenced her husband to worship Baal. 
and in the terrible worship that Baal worship was, she urged him to sin. But even more than Baal worship, what I see in her is self-worship. She worshiped herself. Whatever she wanted, she got. Whatever she didn't want, she got rid of. She didn't want to assimilate into Israel's religion, lifestyle, culture. She wanted to bring her home with her and make everyone in Israel follow her form of worship. When you think about the difference between God and Baal, there is no difference, but just humor me for a minute. God has expectations of us. He has commandments. He has fences that he's put up for our protection. He has limitations and commands. Baal has none of those. He's not real. He's made of hands. So it's easier to follow someone of your imagination than to follow the one true God that has expectations of you. And I would imagine thinking about what Baal worship was, it's probably was probably not hard to convince people to take part in that. With the drought and the famine that was in the land, like I said, it was probably no problem for them. Maybe a little bit more difficult than it was before, but they just took what they wanted and everyone else did without. So self-worship there. When Elijah made her angry, she just threatened his life. All of this to me is self-worship that she struggled with that people struggled with because of her. She wanted it, she'd take it. What upset her, she'd handle that. She worshiped herself, didn't she? Mm -hmm. Number two, her heart was full of deceit. What does deceit mean? You know, it's different, a little bit different than lies, but deceit is concealing or misrepresenting the truth. She took Ahab's name and his authority and his seal. She pretended to be him. And she set up this plot that ended up destroying Naboth. She was full of deceit. And you know, that may be one example, but you know if she premeditated something that awful, you know that she was involved with all kind, in all kinds of deceit in Ahab's palace. So there's no telling what all she was guilty of. Number three, her heart was proud and unrepentant. The definition of proud is having a very high opinion of one's own importance or superiority. And she was pretty proud of herself, how important she was and how much authority she had through Ahab and her superiority. Her wants and her likes and her dislikes were superior to any of anyone else's. She massacred God's prophets and she premeditated the murder of Naboth and she had no remorse about it no indication she had any remorse at all. And I wonder when Jehu, when she saw, and you could see him coming, he was driving furiously, so there was dust, I'm sure, behind him. When Jehu was approaching and she knew that those other kings, had, two kings had died, and he was coming for her, what would you have done? I know what I would have done. Begged for mercy? Well, yeah, run. <laughs> run for it, but Knowing, I, you know, she wasn't going to get away. Beg for mercy. Beg for forgiveness. What would you have done? But what did Jezebel do? Painted her face. Did her hair. She was proud and unrepentant. I wonder if she even considered what she had done wrong. Revelation 3.15, what does that say? I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. That's the one thing that I can think of that God would say maybe had that she had in her favor. She was definitely cold. 
She wasn't lukewarm at all. She was not hot. She was not lukewarm, but she was cold. She was idolatrous and proud and deceitful and unrepentant. So that's what, you know, those are the things that we can learn how not to be, not to have a heart full of idolatry, which I hope that nobody here has a problem with that. Heart full of deceit and a heart full of pride and unrepentance. What about Jezebel's legacy? You ever known someone that church hops? And usually, what do they leave behind them? Strife. I know people like this. You leave destruction behind. You stir things up and then you leave. And you leave a mess behind you. You leave tragedy and discord and, and strife. And you leave others to clean up your mess. And you don't even know, or you don't even face the fact that you're the one that left the mess. People like that, church hop. Jezebel left nothing but wreckage, nothing but strife. I wrote these words down, thinking what she left behind in, in her life. Tragedy, wreckage, poison, infection, terror, betrayal, suspicion, distrust. Can you imagine what it was like to live in her court, knowing what she was capable of, knowing what she was guilty of? When I think about Jehu saying, who is on my side? And three officials looked down, wonder, were they looking over her shoulder? I just, do you ever just want to see things? I want to see this scene taking, taking place. Not that I'm bloodthirsty or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many scenes throughout the Bible that I think, I just want to, I want to see what it must have looked like, you know, was, was she upstairs in this courtyard, you know, peering over the, over this, you know, it must have been high if she hit the ground and her blood spattered. It must have been pretty high for her to bust like that. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. She died in a gross way. <laughs> she was betrayed by these three officials that were behind her and shoved her out the window. I wonder if they were just looking for an opportunity to do something like that. Were there other people that thought, yeah, I wish I could have taken part in that too. She was, she was a terrible woman. There must have been no peace and no rest if you lived around Jezebel. You just never know, knew what she was going to do. So she left wreckage in her wake. When she was gone, she left nothing but, but poison and terror and betrayal. Think about this. Her family was a mess. I was telling Kathy earlier this week, I don't even know how to sum it up. I'm just going to have to say her family was a mess. And they were. Ahab, her husband, 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, says that there was no one like him that sold himself to do evil because she urged him on. She just, there's no excuse for what she did. She was terrible. It says that he acted abominably. And I looked that up. It means detestably, abhorrently in his Baal worship. So you can just let your imagination run away with that, what he did in his Baal worship. Other translations say that he committed the most detestable acts. He was greatly defiled. He committed the most shameful sins. This was a king of Israel that acted abominably because of his wife, Jezebel. Her family was a mess. Her son, Ahaziah, 1 Kings 22, 52, says that he did evil, walked in the way of his father and mother, served and worshipped Baal, he provoked God. 
remote job. Second Kings 1, he had been injured. He fell out of a lattice of some sort. And he asked someone to go inquire of Beelzebub if he was going to recover. Did he even think to ask God? He asked of Beelzebub if he would be healed. Ahaziah was a mess. His, her son-in-law, Jehoram. This is a different one, I think. I'm not sure. I'm still confused about Jehoram and Jehoram. But he did evil. 2 Kings 8, verse 18 says that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Just like Ahab, he married their daughter, Athaliah. Speaking of nasty women, Athaliah, 2 Chronicles 22, 1 through 3. Just look at that for a moment. We've got seven minutes left. 2 Chronicles 22. Let's start at verse 2. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned in one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, granddaughter of Omri, so she was the daughter of Ahab. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Your mother counsels you to do wicked. That's pretty nasty. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. Um, when you go further, and I may have written the wrong passage down, but but when she found out that the kings of Israel were destroyed, she went in and destroyed the offspring, her grandchildren. That hurts my heart in such a way. I can't, I can't even imagine what kind of woman would destroy her grandchildren, except for one. One, is it Joash? She took him and hid him. She did. His nurse took him and hid him. He was one year old when this happened. They hid him for six years until he was brought out. He was made king. And she heard the celebration of him being crowned king and she shouted treason. Well, they took her and executed her at the horse's entrance to Jezreel, which I wonder it may have been the same place where Jezebel died. Because if J.D. came in on his horse at the horse's entrance to Jezreel. So, Athaliah, she was part of Jezebel's family, and she was a wreck in a mess, too. Hundreds had to guard this little boy to keep him safe from her. It's just unimaginable. This was just her family, by the way. Imagine those others that she infected around her from the palace from the country that she affected so what about me it's hard to think that any of us in here would have anything in common with Jezebel I sure hope not to do I see any resemblance in me and Jezebel the lessons that I come away with first of all is that I have influence I have influence I'm an influencer that's a buzzword today you have influence. You have influence. You all, everyone in the you in here has influence. We all have influence in what we say, what we do, how we act, how we respond to things. We influence others. I influence others. And I think especially I influence my husband, John, because I'm around him the most. So what, how does my influence affect him? Maybe my negative thinking spills out in the, the things that I say around him. And it can be contagious. Negative thinking can spill out into our words and our speech, and it affects others. It spreads. Now, why can't we train our minds to lift others up, to encourage others, to elevate others? We can. We can change. I have influence. 
Think about my misplaced priorities. Think about your misplaced priorities. What do people see us trying to do? Do they see us trying to build wealth? Do they see us trying to be fit? Do they see us trying to look good, to educate ourselves? There's nothing wrong with those, but do they see that that's my priority? What's your priority? People can see what your priority is. Does my lack of, of spirituality influence others? People know if you have a lack of spirituality. And lacking desire to be spiritual is contagious in your family. If you do not have a desire to be a spiritual person, to follow after God, it is contagious in your family. I was thinking about, um, it was either Chris or, um, who else spoke last night? Put somebody on the spot. Bart. Bart. It was Bart that was talking about. Everyone in your family sees what you do. Your brothers, your sisters, they know when you do things you shouldn't do. Well, our family sees what's important to us. I think about what my boys watched me do on a daily basis. Was it good or was it bad? I don't think it was bad necessarily, but did they see me in the Word daily on a daily basis? And I'm afraid they didn't. If they lived in my home now, they would, but they're already gone. So what does our family see us do on a daily basis? Because that will spill over to them. My influence now has a long shelf life. I am a product of my mother and father who are a product of their mother and father, who are a product of their mother and father. It extends and it goes down the line. So what you do now, it will impact your children, who will impact their children, your grandchildren, whom you will love more than life itself if you don't have any that. And you may have some regrets, and I don't want anyone to have any regrets, and we can change. Ooh, turn and look at Proverbs 6, 6 or 19. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. It's almost like he looked at Jezebel and described Jezebel for that passage. This is what I want us to be careful about, that all of these traits can potentially be in me and you. We might look at that one about shedding innocent blood and think we're not going to have any problems with that, and maybe not killing someone, but we can easily assassinate someone's character with our words. Every one of those things that God hates can potentially be in me. So choose how you influence. And finally, what kind of legacy would we leave? We will all leave a legacy. If the Lord does not return, every one of us in here will be gone someday. But we will leave a legacy behind. And what will people remember about us? I would like for you to do something that's not, not super easy, but I want us to do this. At your funeral, imagine that people can only speak truth. You know, at funerals, most of the time, you're only going to hear good things, right? But what if people could only say absolute truth what would they say about you what would they say about me <clears throat> not necessarily just the nice thing but what kind of impression do you leave on people if someone were to get up that you just were an acquaintance with what would they say about you 
Many of us prepare our last will and testament when we leave this life. What are you going to leave your jewelry to? Who are you going to leave your jewelry to? Mm -hmm. Are you going to leave your family business to your children? Are you going to leave your family farm or your home? Jezebel's last will and testament mm -hmm. left only wreckage behind. Mm -hmm. Ours may not be as extreme, but do I leave confusion behind? Do I leave an unhappy family behind? Maybe it's a disjointed or a fractured family. And maybe they live under one roof still, but maybe there's not a lot of love or a lot of tenderness or togetherness. So I think it'd be a great thing for us all to go home today and make a list of the things that we want to leave behind. I know what I want to leave behind. I did this myself preparing this lesson. And I won't tell you all of them what they are. But the main thing is that I want to leave my family spiritually blessed. Leaving spiritual blessings behind is more valuable than all of Apple stock in the world. The Hope Diamond, whatever else is valuable, I don't know. Leave your family spiritually blessed. Jezebel's life is gone, and no doubt she wishes she could come back and change things about her life. But you are still here. Jezebel's life doesn't have to be a complete waste. We can look at it and learn how not to be because of her. Decide that you'll be nothing like Jezebel and be aware of and use your influence to make others' lives good. Know that you'll leave a legacy behind. Be intentional about how you want to be. I hope and pray that we'll all learn from Jezebel's life. Let's bow together. Father, we're so grateful for this quiet time that we've been able to study the lives of one that you would, you did not even want Jezebel to be lost. God, she had the choices to make. I pray that we will look at her life and not let her life be wasted, but that we will to be able to change the things in our lives that need to be changed, that we will see where we do wrong, see that, see where we're weak, and make those changes that are necessary. Father, I'm just so grateful for this family, God. I'm grateful for this room full of sisters, grateful for what they mean to me, grateful for the family that you've given us. 